back to another episode of Knowing God with Heart and Mind. That's our regular visit to the virtual church classroom at Shiloh United Methodist Church in Jasper, Indiana. I'm Pastor Dan, and beside me is my beautiful daughter, Bethany. And we are in the midst of studying the book by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity. We are on book three, chapter six, Christian marriage. So today we're going to talk about book three, chapter six of Mere Christianity, and the topic is Christian marriage. This recording is being made on July 26th, 2019. So Bethany, the chapter is Christian marriage, and we are going to try one of these questions, I think, to start with. So Christian morality about marriage is based on what? Meant to combine whom and intended for what duration? Well, forever, for starters. That's the answer to the last part. Um, he says that Christian, the Christian idea of marriage should seems to be that it's a a man and a wife that are that become a single organism because Christ says that they become one flesh and that whoever whoever the so-called inventor of the human people are which we know to be God <laughs> clearly uh meant that there were two halves that needed to go together man and woman according to C.S. Lewis, anyway. Well, I would concur with yeah. that. I I don't know. I, I guess he would attribute this to my sort of innate, instinctive Christianity or, or you know, biblical truth that's in me that says, you know, that moral programming that he talks about. And I, I would say that, that I and I would argue that from the perspective of anyone who isn't a completely secular human being, I would say that there is an instinct that says, when I get married, I mean for it to last forever. And I've certainly talked to plenty of people who have been married and divorced. I've, been, uh, uh, I've talked to people who are living together and, and contemplating marriage, and I've talked to people who are single and just trying to figure out how to have a meaningful, intimate relationship with somebody without pushing the boundaries mm -hmm. of, of Christian morality, you know. So I've had all kinds of conversations about this with different people as a pastor, and I've had my own thoughts on the topic and my own life experiences to inform me as well. So, and I'm a dad with a beautiful daughter and handsome son and sons and daughters, and I, I want to try to inform them as wisely as I can too. So all that being said, what C.S. Lewis is saying, and I totally concur with, is, is that it is meant to be a union of spirits. Mm -hmm. And what happens is not always that. And I, I suppose we're going to get to this in mm -hmm. a minute. But, but I, I think that, that if people enter into marriage with a commitment to an eternal bond, then that's probably what they'll get. But if they enter into marriage with a limited commitment or a naive, uninformed commitment, then they're probably not going to do as well. Mm -hmm. So, Okay, so 
next question. I'm trying really hard not to be heard by your microphone. I know. <laughs> we have, uh, I'm going to go over here in the corner and talk to the wall. Okay, that's really weird. Yeah, it's weird because, you, know. you know, it's weird. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> We're, we, I, we, we value your input, listeners, and we've heard that Bethany isn't always as easy to hear as I am, and, and uh, we're trying to improve that. And, and if I crank her microphone up, then you hear sort of an echo effect of me because you hear my mic and hers. And so we're not professional broadcasters, and this is not a professional studio, so we're doing the best we can of figuring out how to do this well. Mm -hmm. So anyhow... So I think it's pretty interesting. He wrote this before he was married. Mm -hmm. And he says, like, I'm not married, so some people are going to be like, hmm. And he says, I can only speak about it secondhand. But I did think that was interesting that this is... Because he did get married kind of later in his life. Mm -hmm. Late in life. But this is pre his marriage. So mm -hmm. he's he's speaking as a little bit of an outsider on this. So different denominations have different views about allowing divorce, but what do they all regard divorce as, according to Jack? Well, as like a separation or like a literal cleaving. Right. So. Yeah, I mean... The, the dissolution of a marriage is like a dissolution of a marriage is a kind of surgical procedure that cuts up a living body. Mm -hmm. that, that's kind of the way that, that they would pretty much agree. And I think, I think that's one of the things, and I'm not making a commentary that, that I would want to have people interpret as some sort of judgment. But what I find interesting, again, in my experience as a pastor and doing some pastoral counseling is that people who live together for a great long time or who, who have more or less clung to each other, when they split, they have been cleaved or separated from each other. And this is, this, it doesn't matter what your legal definition of your relationship is at that point. If you've entered into a sort of covenant, commitment, intimate relationship with a person and you've shared life with a person, and, and honestly, I think that's the thing that strengthens marriage from my experience of almost 30 years now, is that it's the things you did together, the things you endured together, the things that the shared memories, the shared journey, the, the shared struggles, I mean, all of these things you didn't do alone you did with this other person so when that's broken it's going to leave collateral damage it's going to leave a lot of damage and mm. whether or not you're married at some point it doesn't matter you know and i find that that the it's very common at least in in my observation um people speak of of their boyfriend or their girlfriend and what they're saying is is I've been living with this person for the last six years and we have three kids together and and all of that but we never got married and so they can't really call him husband or wife and somehow that's what they wanted but the only thing that's really changed is, is that they don't have a document that calls them husband and wife and yet they have as far as the Christian definition and certainly the way that C.S. Lewis interprets it they have for all intents and purposes a marriage mm -hmm. you know and when it's broken 
it has the same horrible outcome, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah. So marriage vows are promises. If people do not believe in permanent marriage, why does Lewis say it is perhaps better for them to live together unmarried? Because he talks about, like, he goes back to some of the Christian virtues he talked about, like justice. And he talks about how justice, part of justice is keeping promises. And if you're going to stand up in church and make a vow, which is like the ultimate kind of promise. Mm hmm that you don't intend to keep then you ought to just skip that part because you're lying and you're you're basically an imposter Mm -hmm. um because you want he says like you want the respectability attached to marriage but not but you don't want to have to pay the actual price for Mm -hmm. said respectability he doesn't pull any punches (laughs) and he's way ahead of his time in a lot of respects um well or he's a more honest about the times he lived in because there's just a lot of hidden things about his times because they were untoward Mm -hmm. you know but uh, it's interesting because again I can relate to this because when I do weddings and I've performed quite a few I'm aware that these people are just looking at me as a means to an end they're looking at my church as a source of you know the ideal venue i mean they're they want to have a, always wanted a church wedding every time i ask them i always ask the couples when i meet them especially if i don't know them very well i'll just say so why do you want to have a church wedding you know why do you want to have your wedding here and with a christian minister you know and and she speaks up of course and says well i always wanted a church wedding and this church is so beautiful okay so what we've established is is that this is the uh, framework that you want for your yourself as a centerpiece you know you, you I, and I oh, I'll get myself in deep trouble on this one there is a certain aspect of the traditional marriage ceremonies that I've experienced where the bride you know it it's supposed to be a big celebration and everything but it's sort of like a very you know one woman focused sort of thing where it's all about her and and so she's looking for the perfect centerpiece for her you know or or she's the perfect centerpiece and she's looking for the perfect place to put it you know and 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 believe me what i know from experiences is as i get to know them they genuinely love each other and they really want to have a you know a wonderful marriage ceremony but i always have to kind of take them and i do it for my own sake i do it because as a pastor as a clergy person I'm not really motivated to do weddings as a sort of task, you know, to earn a little extra money or something. That's not what I'm in this mm-hmm. for. I, so when they come to my church, it's sort of like they're coming to my house. And it's like, well, you know, if you want to do that in my house, I'm not sure I'm okay with it. And so what I do is I try to reframe it for them. And I say, okay, look, I want you to understand what's going on if you get married in this church. Maybe you never thought of this before, but now I want you to know how I'm going to see it. I'm going to see you standing before the altar that our church sanctuary has in there to remind us that God is present, just as altars have always been a sign of God's Mm -hmm. presence. And so when you stand before the altar, you're standing before God. And I am in all, for all practical purposes, I'm a priest in that moment. And my job is to communicate God's will to you and to be God's voice and presence for you. 
So you have a very strong piece of evidence that God is present, and then you have me acting in this voice and presence role as God. And that means when you make those vows, you may, as human beings, eventually come up with a reason why you're justified in breaking those vows. But you've got to take into account that you are standing before God and you're making a commitment before God. Mm -hmm. You know, and I just I drive that home with them as hard as I can. And again, it's from past experiences, my own life I'm talking about. I now know from my own failings exactly how important these things are and you know so i'm i'm right there with jack on this Mm -hmm. one okay better jump ahead passions lead to promises but passions are short-lived whereas promises are not what are good what are some good reasons why two people should stay together even when the passion has faded yeah, I really like he talks about the difference between being in love and loving someone. Mm-hmm. And but but to answer that question, he talks about like you know, there's probably children. Mhm. And they need to be protected and have a safe sound home. Um to protect the woman um from being dropped when the man is tired. And I I do have to say that I think that might not be quite so accurate now, but I get what he's saying. It's certainly his his uh, his statement parallels the very comments that Jesus made. Yes, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, for example. I mean, he's he's basically saying you you discard the people in your life who depend on you. Um, there will be hell to pay, mm-hmm. so to speak. Um, and then he kind of goes into a much longer explanation of another reason, um, where he talks about, like, instead of thinking in terms of good and bad, we need to think about things in terms of, like, good, better, the best. Yeah. And he says, like, being in love is good, but it's not the best thing. And the reason to stay together is because once that being in love feeling passes, love is able to really take root. Mm-hmm. And that's a reason to stay together because it's not a feeling. Yeah. I mean, it is a feeling, but it's also not a feeling because it's that unity of the two people. And I, and I like how Jack says, strengthened by habit and reinforced by the grace of God. Right. You know, that's the essence of Christian marriage. Huh. Okay. Apart from what novels and films tell us about being in love, what point is Lewis trying to get across about Christ saying a thing will not really live until it first dies? Well, he gives some cool examples. He talks about, like, a very timely example for him about, like, a kid joining the RAF because he, he loves the idea of flying. But then when he actually starts learning, his whole being in love with the idea of flying fades, and he loves flying. Mm-hmm. And that is thrilling. Mm-hmm. And so, like, the first love, that fresh feeling of love, has to die, though. Because the idea of flying probably doesn't totally match up with the reality. Um, and he gives a, other examples like that, but he says, like, you know you go through it and that first thrill dies away because you can't keep the first thrill forever. But 
the ideal situation is when that first thrill dies, you actually, it gets better. Um, because it grows in depth and that, but unfortunately there's some people who chase that first thrill over and over and over again mm-hmm. in all aspects of their lives, not just relationships. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I do think, um, you know, again, I, I suppose he's writing from the perspective of a bachelor and an observer of, of his friends and, and colleagues, you know, and, but, but I think there is, passion doesn't die no as marriages go on it changes um you know and and there's a certain sort of uh comfortable it's you know in the early parts of a relationship especially in marriage there's a exploration you know there's ex- excitement about discovery and and you know by the time people have been married for a long time they just know each other really well and passion's way more subtle but no less passionate. Well, and that's what he says. Like, if you let the thrill die, which is okay, and settle into kind of the quieter happiness, mm-hmm. you actually kind of discover that there's thrills all the time. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. So beyond the Christian idea of permanence of marriage, there is one further and even more unpopular doctrine, and that's submission. How does Lewis explain the need for a head, and if a head, why a man? Do you agree? You just made a face at me, so you know that I don't. <laughs> that this is a, this one really um, made me bite my tongue a lot while I was reading it. So it's all right. <laughs> um, I get fun. it. I really do get it, and I understand. But I also have my issues which i've had for a long time and that's why you made a face at me because you knew (laughs) and i love you (laughs) so you know he points out that when two individuals aren't in agreement either they must separate or they have to decide the issue and this head must be agreed upon as a sort of you know as in the constitution and the idea is simply to have um leadership and even in a family, even in a marriage between just one couple, you know, so if there are no children, uh, between a man and a woman who join together in marriage, there is sort of an agreement about, you know, the tiebreakers or that kind of thing. I mean, that's what I hear him saying. And to that extent, I'm with, I, I would say that in any coupling of any kind, partnerships or whatever, there is always sort of an understanding of whose will will probably usually always be the final word when it comes to that. Now, in a healthy, loving relationship, we would assume that everything's sort of a consensus thing anyway. That, that you know, if, we, if we're trying to decide whether having, you know, Mexican food tonight or Chinese food tonight, um, you know, if one person says, look, we've had Chinese the last three times we've been out. Let's do something different. I want Mexican. Chances are the other one's going to say, you know, that's a great idea. I think the part that bugs me is that there's only one, like, that the specific head ends up having to be the man. Right. Because I see where there are situations that could come up in a, in a relationship that's just a man and wife, no kids, whatever, or with kids. But depending on the situation, 
if it's a stalemate, it kind of depends what the situation is, who really needs to make that judgment call. I, I just feel like there are times where the woman should be the head of when it, if based on what he's talking about, there are times where the mother or the wife should be the head saying this needs to be the decision we make and be that tiebreaker. So it just doesn't feel like I, I just don't like the fact that it seems, seems like a lot of our culture and even Jack in this case is saying that it's going to come down to being the guy and well, he, he seems to feel head. strongly that that in a traditional biblical view of marriage, that the man is supposed to be the head according to the scriptural uh, definition. And I don't think that that he or anyone with a reasonable mind would say some sort of authoritarian slave driving, you know, what, I mean, there are plenty of examples of that in society and, and other religious cultures. But I think what he's saying, you know, because because it's like um, uh, Jesus talks about it, but the Apostle Paul says, you know, the idea is that the 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 man would be, you know, that the the woman would be submissive to the to the man, but the man would love his wife like Christ loves the church. And so the idea is, is that there is a deep, compassionate conviction to work towards the goodwill and betterment of the other. Mm-hmm. And that, that the Bible would seem to suggest that, that that works best with the man being the head of the household. But, you know, as soon as, an, as soon as a man abdicates that responsibility, then the women take over and often do a great job. And, and honestly, the church, is, you know, the traditional church, um, the denominational church is run mostly by women because the women are the ones who have taken on a greater responsibility for maintaining the faith and teaching it to their children. And men don't generally do that like they should. And it's always been a big problem. And, and it's definitely part of this period of human history that the Western world is seeing men not taking on their God-given responsibility to their families. And, and you know, as a pastor, that's one of the things that I try so hard to fix. I mean, I mean, it's as much as I can fix it, but to just drive the men toward fulfilling their responsibilities. But, you know, most of us don't have great examples and most of us don't have a culture that supports that. And so women have taken the role that God intended for men to have, as C.S. Lewis would put it. But it isn't that they took it away. It's because it was given away. And in a home or a family where the man is really living up to his responsibilities, then a woman would feel free to live up to the things that are naturally uh, given over to her. But this also assumes that every woman and every man wants that. And so I'm perfectly aware of and convinced that not every woman wants to be in that kind of uh, traditional relationship with a man. But then I hope they find somebody that, or man or woman, finds somebody that they can be content with. And yeah, it's a tough topic, but, but I don't think that it's um, outrageous to to assume that well, I think if things were as God intended them to be, 
that would work and it would work well. That's kind of like what he said in a couple of a couple of chapters back when he was talking about the the world would be a sort of socialist, you know, mm-hmm. kind of world if Christ were actually running everything. But since he's not, we're kind of compelled to live with this weird balancing act between doing God's will and doing, you know, what it takes to survive in a world that's, you know, contaminated by sin. And I think this is sort of the same kind of thing. He's approaching it the same way, saying in an ideal world, these relationships would work ideally. But where they don't, we have all kinds of other things we've got to deal with. I think the part that just irks me, and I can't believe that he wrote something that irks me because I'm usually, like, right there with him. But it's just that he talks about how, like, well, if women are supposed to be the head, then how come the woman's always, like, how come you always hear women kind of gossipy and saying things like, oh, look at that poor man. His wife just runs all over him and tells him what to do. She's such a bot, you know, like that kind of thing. And he talks about how there must be something unnatural about a wife ruling over her husband because even wives seem half ashamed that they rule their husband and I just don't think that that's a fair argument at mm-hmm. least anymore because I don't I'm yes there are absolutely men who are like so called you know like henpecked you know but that's about the woman having some character flaws yeah and the guy too, because if you you know if there's not balance there, there's you know. But but I just I don't think that I love the fact the way he wrote it doesn't jive with me very well. I got gotcha. you. Um, because I do get like he says that if it like especially in like a family, if a situation comes up where it's like mama bear mm-hmm. versus the world because her kids are in trouble then you need dad to step in and like maybe have a little more perspective. Mm-hmm. However, I have plenty of friends and I know plenty of families where papa bears the problem and mom has to step in with the perspective. So I just think like mm-hmm. I I don't know. I I hear what you're saying. The traditional roles are a struggle for me personally because I'm a student of history too and don't get me wrong, I think the Bible is fact. But I'm a student of history. And the Bible was written from a very patriarchal society. Sure. And that would impact the things that are in it. Yeah. And I'm not saying that we need, like, matriarchal societies. There are big problems there, too. But whether whether it's intended to or not, there are definitely places in the Bible where it does feel like women are supposed to be servile or subservient. I would agree with that. And that has always not jived well with me because I'm a woman. <laughs> And I'm not real keen on being told that I'm supposed to bow before somebody else and do exactly what they say if it's not in my best interest. But you have to admit that sometimes when you're reading scripture and it has something to do with the version you're reading and so forth, but but what you just described is not necessarily what the scripture says. Mm-hmm. It's the way you hear what the scripture says. Yeah. Right. But so some way, of but, some of the things that really tick people off about Christians is their assumptions about Christians and their assumptions about the meanings of certain phrases that have been associated with Christians, like the man is the head of the house and the woman will submit to the man. You know, every time that comes up, 
in casual conversation <laughs> i don't know what kind of casual conversation but but you know the the southern baptist convention uh voted to make that statement as plainly and loudly as they could uh oh probably 15 years ago and i mean it made national news because you know naturally they picked up on that one as something that says see Christians are awkward, backward people who want to take us back to a day when women were slaves to men. And yet, in all of history, where Christianity has, has thriven because it was lived out by people who really got it, the last thing you saw were abusive relationships and oppressive relationships. If there's one thing I'm certain of from reading my Bible over these years, it is that God hates oppression. Mm -hmm. So I can't reconcile God's hatred for oppression and statements about men being the head of the household unless I see it as a godly man he heading his household in a way that honors God, which means he's not going to be oppressive. You know, and... I just think, like, that when you're making like when and i kind of already said it but i don't think gender should play a role in like if you're deferring to someone mm -hmm. you're deferring to the person with the knowledge and the know-how to make that decision whether you're in a workplace or a friendship or a marriage if it if it's if it's decision time and and you can't make up your minds by talking it out then deference should go to the person who has the knowledge to make the best decision. Granted. And that's where I get stuck on the head of the household thing because maybe the guy doesn't have what he needs to make a decision and we're still supposed to let him make that decision? <laughs> that seems dumb. Well, I do understand, and you know as well as anyone, that I will often say to your mother, I don't know anything about this topic. Right. You, you know, what do you think we should do? And I don't let my pride get in the way of trying to do what's best. Yeah. But, you know. Well, okay, on that cheery note. Well, all that being said, he did say something that there was not a question about that I really appreciate. He said, like, and this is something we've had conversations about, but before he got to the head of household thing where I got all fired up and annoyed... <laughs> He talks about how, like, when we're talking about divorce, we need to distinguish very clearly between, like, the Christian concept of marriage and the law. Right. And I really, really appreciate that because he basically says, like, like in his time, he's saying, not all the people in the United Kingdom are Christians. And the government shouldn't be holding them all to a Christian standard of marriage. Mm -hmm. And I think that sounds a lot like conversations that our country has been having for the past few years about other topics. It's true. Um, and here's C.S. Lewis saying churches should recognize Christian marriage and the government should have their own rules and it should be a really sharp distinction so that people know the difference between a couple married in the Christian sense and the ones that aren't. Yep. So that you know. But, you know, he says, like, I'd be really angry if Muslims were like, hey, we need to prohibit wine. 
Mm-hmm. No one's allowed to drink wine because it's a religious thing. Um, I think so I our think country tried that once. They did, and it didn't work. We were we were more drunk than ever. <laughs> well, folks, this is a topic that you can carry on in your discussion at your house <laughs> and see how you come out on it. The most important thing for you to take away, I hope, is that there are clear distinctions between the world's view of things and the Christian view of things. And that when it comes to Christian marriage, it is by C.S. Lewis's interpretation of scripture, a matter of sacred significance because it carries on to eternity. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely agree. And if you're going to live into eternity with someone, you might want to work out who's in charge of what. And that in itself may not be that difficult a decision in a house where, you know, the woman is comfortable with the man being the head, but the man is also an honorable, God-fearing person who leads with grace and and God-like, you know, God god-given qualities i guess is what i want to say that's not very common but it's what we should strive for on the other hand there will be healthy christian marriages where the division of authority will be more evenly split and where there won't be any uh cast in stone roles uh for a person because of their maleness or a person because of their femaleness um you know the fact is we are broken sin afflicted people living in a broken sin afflicted world and there are a lot of things that don't go the way God intended them to be yet but we're supposed to practice and try to get closer to that every day so that uh, pretty much wraps it up for this episode so this was um, what episode did I say this was this is episode 17 right episode 17 yeah. of the Knowing God with Heart and Mind a virtual church classroom Bible study or book study in this case and we are people from Shiloh United Methodist Church in Jasper, Indiana and we'd love to know you if you're listening from afar drop us a line if you're near Jasper which is down in the southwest uh, quadrant of Indiana then uh, we'd be glad to meet you come on over and see us if you want to know where we are and how to get there and how to reach out and talk to us the best thing to do is go to shilohum.org that's s-h-i-l-o-h-u-m dot org and of course you can also visit us at the Knowing God with Heart and Mind Facebook group Shiloh is also on Facebook and we even have a really slick Shiloh United Methodist of Jasper uh, app. And so get a hold of those things and get to know us better. We would love to hear from you. But for now, I think we'll say farewell and we'll see you when we come back with the next episode. So uh, God bless you and goodbye. See you later. Mm-hmm.